Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider, episode 108. We're coming live from level 39, the home of Fintech. We've had great feedback. In the first few episodes, we've been downloaded over 5,000 times in 65 countries. And we'd really appreciate any reviews on iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform. So please leave us some comments on who you'd like to see or what you'd like to hear, or indeed any just random questions. We've got a great blockchain special for you today. So on with the news. Before we get there, we should introduce our fabulous guest this week. We've got Vinay Gupta starting a new VC fund at the moment. Vinay, do you want to say hey? Hi. We've got Lindsay Barber, fresh from City AM. Say hey, Lindsay. <laughs> hey, Lindsay. <laughs> and we've got Ajit Tripathi. Is that right? That right? Yep. From PwC. That's correct. Hi, guys. Hey. So, on to the first story. BBVA says the EU bonus cap hampers tech talent acquisition. Lindsay, what do you think? Oh, this is a great story. Um, well done, FT, as much as I hate to admit it. <laughs> Good story. Um, it's a really interesting one. I was surprised to find that this was an issue for them in the sense of hiring technologists um, and specialists in fintech. The, ba- uh, the bonus cap is half a million euros. Okay. That's a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of money. And that um, prevents them from hiring tech talent. I mean, I've clearly made the wrong career in this. Uh, you know, uh, that's a huge amount of money. I'm genuinely surprised. You guys would probably know better than I would what the average pay is. For tech talent. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the average pay for tech talent, you know, is you get equity in the company and then you become a billionaire. So if you're asking people to give up that possibility to be part of a bank you're going to have to pay them an awful lot of money. I think good tech talent, yes. Right, so there's um, there's the difference between good tech talent and somebody who can write code. Um, and the premium in Silicon Valley, you know, that I once I think I read a TechCrunch article that said a, a really good AI developer can make as much as a starting quarterback in the NFL, you know, first year starting quarterback. So, you know, there's an absolute premium on a really amazing software engineers. And I guess what we're seeing is, is a bit of that with BBVA. But also is this a bit of marketing, like come work for BBVA, we're throwing around the cash because like, <laughs> you know, even with the cap, you're still going to make half a mil if you're any good. Like, that's a, that's a serious amount of money. Yeah, I think I need to go back and work on my tech, ta- my tech talent. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to be more talented. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about this before, the fact that you can get a 10x UI guy or a 10x coder. And, and actually, John Spindler, uh, who works in Caps Enterprise in London, would said to me that the uh, target for any new startup is to be one of the two or three startups that everyone wants to work for. Because there's something about bringing together a very small team of immensely talented people that lets them do things that teams of 100 or 200 or 300 can't do. But I, I'm not sure I've seen, and maybe you guys have, the bank's quite cotton on to that. It seems there's a, well, how many contractors have we got? And is there anyone earning more than a thousand a day? Well, let's stop there. Well, I mean, banks have an enormous problem, which is, you know, legacy systems going back into, I don't know, what, the 1960s? Conservatively, possibly the 1950s for some of the very old models, like uh-huh. the data models. There are probably still data models go back to the 50s. Um, <clears throat> so inside of that environment, innovation is not really going to be possible uh, in 
you know, anything like the same way that it is with de novo systems, right? When you're starting with a blank sheet of paper, you throw a bunch of geniuses at it and you can get something done. Those geniuses spend all of their time tangling the systems that were written in the 1980s and that are politically untouchable. Uh-huh. So the notion of just coming in with a flamethrower and starting over. Yeah, I think Jason, hit, uh, you said something really important here because I managed technology teams for two of the largest investment banks for 10 years. And uh, I mean, banks in Europe in particular seems to seem to hire a lot of program managers, project managers, business analysts, and push all the development staff over offshore. So, I mean, if that's changing and we're starting to value tech talent really at the levels that BBVA are talking about, I would love to see that day because that means we are starting to focus on delivering product and and technology as opposed to simply um, paperwork, really. And yeah. What always scared me about having worked in a bank is I never met a developer. And, and every, I'm, I'm like, these right. people, like, why haven't I met any yet? Like, where are they all? Like, at some point, some software appears and it, you know, and then there's, the, but there's this army of people I interface with and none of them can write code. It's the change function. Yeah, it's the right. change function I see or it's the compliance function I see and all those sorts of things that are considered. And there is this cultural thing of like the business is stronger. You know, the people who sell the product are the smart ones because they bring in the revenue. But actually, you know, in sort of culture, it's very different to that. Yeah. And, you know, maybe BBBA thinking that way. But yeah. So but do you not, are, we, are we talking here about the, the actual kind of on the ground developers or are we talking with this kind of pay, the people who manage that? No, I, I think there is a, in this, if you look at the front office developers, right, as in the strats who write hedge fund trading software and algorithms, they do actually get paid a lot. Uh-huh. And if, uh, and, and they're seen as the producers at firms like Goldman Sachs or you know, Morgan Stanley or JP Morgan. And uh, now with the emergence of fintech, if the people who are driving the revenues are people who are writing the software, that actually enables the digital delivery of financial services, then I'm pretty sure that these tax will start to get paid. And actually the producers, the developers will start to get paid the big bucks. But I guess it's interesting that we're coming back around in the cycle that at one point software development did happen here. And then it would see more of a commodity, how a cost center, how can we do this on the cheap? Or let's offshore it over to India or wherever. And now it's a case of, uh, well, actually, it's important again, or or we really need to the the world's best in this. I feel so good about it. (laughs) As a career developer, it's like redemption. (laughs) (laughs) All of this is is there are basically two groups of people at war for control of Western society. Yeah. Lawyers and programmers. (laughs) They both have a very similar skill set in that what they do is they master huge systems that are written in a very foreign, very technical language. You know, one group are looking at old precedent, the other group are looking at old libraries, uh-huh. operating system functions. And then, you know, a very skilled lawyer can make a decision which will save your company billions of dollars, ideally, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a very skilled programmer can, you know, generate a set of systems which will generate millions of dollars, billions mm-hmm. of dollars. Even. So, you know, inside of that power structure, the lawyers are losing power, you know, year on year on year. Because more and more of the technology is being created so quickly that the law doesn't catch up. So you wind up with increasingly large areas of culture in which code is law because law hasn't caught up to become law. And you can see this with the enormously aggressive approach that Uber took, right? We've got a system which provides excellent quality services, goods consumer protection. Uh, we can tweak it to be compliant with whatever your silly little local label laws are, but fundamentally the market is gone. And then they just slammed this thing into every jurisdiction around the world full force 
and most of them took it because it just wasn't worth fighting. And the notion that you've got you know the first really big tech company to simply roll over a local wall with a steamroller, this is extremely indicative of what the future is going to look like. 20th century law cannot keep up with 21st century technology at all. 21st century technology wins hands down yes. every single time. Banks are kind of in the, right in the middle, and fintech especially are right in the the. the in between of that because they're heavily regulated and they have to deal with the laws and they're, they're naturally kind of more risk averse and yet they're more uh, affected by changes in software. So it becomes interesting. I mean, Jason, you, know, you were telling me about something about here at 11FS. We don't have that big thing at the end of an email signature that says, you know, if we sent this to you by accident, delete it <laughs> because you, you told me somewhere that um, you know nobody's ever actually enforced that anywhere. That, that is something that a big bank would never do, but as a small company, you can say, well, that kind of sucks, let's just get rid of it. And and I think those decisions you can take based on the facts, and, and I think there's something about creative destruction there that's quite interesting. I, I think you're right, and there is still a question about whether the ap- approach that Uber took can be applied to uh, by a firm like Lending Club or you know, Lending Circle, because we've seen that when it comes to money, uh, the lawyers are still quite a bit more important than in other areas of life. So, um, and we've seen that the financial industry is still a lot more regulated than the technology industry. And there is a good reason for it because people's savings, lives, careers, you know, when children are involved. And uh, as a result, uh, the consumers obviously need to be protected a lot more than they would be in the case of uh, potentially Uber. So, well, think of, I mean, think of the horror show that was the Ethereum DAO. Yeah, uh, we'll come on to that one later. Okay. <laughs> I don't, and I, I don't, before we open that can of worms, <laughs> right. I guess the talk of Lending Club leads us nicely on to our LendUp secures $14.7 million to build the friendly dolphin, not the loan shark of credit cards. This is my favourite new phrase. Uh, I'm going to use it all the time. Being a friendly, friendly dolphin. dolphin. Yeah. Because I'm not a loan shark. I'm lending to you in a slightly different way. Yeah. Everybody loves a dolphin. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, you get mascots in there and, you know, little toys and stuff, and it's it's going to be huge. Bigger than meerkats. Oh, we'll see. Considering Wonga is such a toxic brand, and, and most lending, you know, startups have pretty much their roots in, in Wonga. At the time that Wonga came along, it was on the front cover of Wired. It was this big thing that this is going to revolutionise everything. And obviously it all went tits up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's quite hard for people to believe that you can be a socially good lender. Ooh, interesting idea. Because yeah. I think the thing with this one, when I read the story, is that they're, they're trying to change the fee structure, which basically reads as they want to be less profitable. Uh, Exactly. You can't. I, I I find it hard to understand how you can be socially good and 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 make money. Well, I, I, I don't know if they're compatible. There is a sustainability aspect to that, right? So we saw uh, payday lenders emerge in the U.S. and then they spread out in other countries, but then they realized that they couldn't sustain those extremely high rates of lending. And now, you know, our firm does a lot of work around approvals and authorizations of financial institutions. And But we've realized that, that they're starting to set caps. You know, some of these lenders are starting to set caps because they still make a handsome amount of money, but it just makes the business much more sustainable from in terms of the trust with the consumers and the sustainability in terms of being a regulated financial institution. Uh, they, they can continue to do business at cap rates, but not necessarily at so there is there is a sustainability aspect of being somewhat consumer friendly, and the, the the reality is a large proportion of the population borrow. But it, it's an interesting question as to whether that's uh, good 
And well, is, it a, is, it, is it not a binary question, but actually a spectrum of, well, it really depends how much you have to pay for that, for that facility in the end. Because in the end, for borrowing £100 for a week at standard overdraft levels, you're paying pence. Mm-hmm. You know, the yeah. 20% EAR is like pence. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's very different from borrowing £100 for a week and it costing you £10, mm-hmm. or which then rolls on if you can't, can't pay it. And I think there's something about having a new brand in the credit card space. I mean, every new brand that's come along has been more and more subprime historically, but there hasn't been like the, the credit card player that is generally like a, like one of the neobanks, you know, it's we're more about the consumer, we're more about fairness. So, you know, are they doing something with their technology that says, actually, we can be a different brand, we're more tech savvy. I think, you know, the, the friendly dolphin thing aside, they, they, they may have um, a millennial audience that has typically seen credit cards as being the same as cigarettes, who actually eventually come to a stage in their life where they realize a re- revolving line of credit actually can be quite useful especially when you're not trapped into um, interest rate escalators and, and, and so on and, exactly and, you know, right. and, and lots of fee- FX fees and so on. So there's there's definitely room to do this more competitively. And in the interest rate environment banks are in right now and the cost overhead they have, you know, competing here is really going on to banks' home turf. I think if you look at, um, at the annual reports of most banks, their credit card division tends to be one of the best performers. It still performs extremely well, still a very profitable business, great high margins, um, and, and it just ticks over quite nicely. So it, real competition coming to the space. But how much of that is balance transfers and quasi-loans versus actually, you know, day-to-day uh, use? Yeah, the 12 months, you know, zero interest, um, you know. Teaser love, rate. Yeah, people love that. Yeah. And, and, you know, people are getting more savvy about that kind of thing mm. as a result of the whole Pura around payday loans and things they're getting more savvy they'll just move it around what is it that martin lewis calls them the like the rate tarts just move around (laughs) from from you know one one to another it's unlikely it's it's less likely i think that you're going to get people who sign up to this and then stay on and they're paying this little Mm. bit of money here and there for, for for that service i think it'd be interesting to see if psd2 and the whole sort of open banking APIs actually automates that. Suddenly, you exactly. know, the rate Automated tart as a service. Rate tart, <laughs> rate tart as a service. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I heard it here first. So I'm going to swing back around to this question about whether it's possible to do social good and also make money, mm. whether there's an automatic trade-off. Um, I think Grameen Phone is a really interesting example of that. So, you know, socially conscious phone service, they build little community cooperatives that resell the phone service. Mm-hmm. And that gives them a sales network, which is massively larger than they'd otherwise be able to afford. So that notion that you've got kind of social capital and financial capital co-creating each other Mm. uh, is, I think, the only place where it's possible to do social good and not have it come out your bottom line. And what it requires is the the asset pool of social capital turns into financial capital, which then turns into social capital, which turns into financial capital. The wealth of the organization has to be stored in both forms, then roll over, which is what the Grameen Bank did, right? Mm. Grameen Lending was against social capital. Grameen Phone uses social capital for lending networks. So I don't see any social capital aspect to a credit card, which is slightly less predatory, Mm. right? It might not be a shark, but it may still be a lamprey. (laughs) (laughs) And a lot of this comes down to uh, whether or not they're going to take out the kind of high road approach and not offer credit to people that are profitable but likely to run into trouble. Yeah. If they're willing to deny credit to people that they think will abuse it or have a history of abusing it, you know, the friendly dolphin is the thing that refuses to do business with you if they think that you're going to have trouble maintaining it. Maybe that's an angle that they um, need to flesh out. 
I, I think I have a, uh, on that note, when I have a bit of a Republican approach to this, as in if we inform the consumers and they have the data and analytics and decision support tools at their hand on their phones to make the right decisions around how much they want to borrow and whether they can afford it, then I think they're in a better place than if we uh, take a position that lending necessarily is not a not a social good. I think people do need to borrow and they need to, you know, access to cash or money when they don't uh, for short term use and so on. Now, uh, and then the second thing I would say is that uh, we have to make lending sustainable. Right. And I think a friendly dolphin, assuming they are really friendly, mm-hmm. and if they can allow me to borrow money sustainably without getting into a lot of debt, then that's not such a bad thing. But well, I need to look at that. Test for the dolphins to figure out if they really are friendly. Um, I wonder if this involves some like shapes um, for them to figure out is this a triangle or a square? No, we could actually bring together like a group of people who we think you should lend to this person, you shouldn't lend to that person, and you could actually do a blind test of all of these mm. these um, you know uh-huh. lenders right. to and see the, how it, how they they fare against uh, it. Exactly, like I a feeling like test. Say that the dolphin chooses. The dolphin chooses. <laughs> now I'm going to stop us there because we could go on for ages. Yeah, they could go on. So the next headline: Bitfinex to issue company equity to refund customers of the hack. Wow. (laughs) So for those of you that don't know, Bitfinex is a Bitcoin exchange. Uh, So they exchange your friendly pound sterling, your euros or your US dollars in return for magic beans, also known as Bitcoins. Uh, Bitcoins is a speculative asset, can be very fun. Some people trade these and make a lot of money from them. Uh, Some people believe they are the future of money and, and, uh, you know, they may have a point one day. Who knows? Um, But I think so what happened here is... um, Bitfinex, uh, even though they had uh, this this amazing uh, thing called multisig, where multiple people needed to sign a given transaction, so not just uh, not just Bitfinex um, signing it, but not just you signing it, but some independent third party signing every transaction, so that to prevent hacks and to prevent anybody from moving your money without you knowing about it, um, still got hacked, and they got hacked from what I can tell in the old-fashioned way. Um, so they ended up losing close to seventy-two million US dollars of of customer funds. Uh, it is in, but a flesh wound. <laughs> <laughs> said, said the Black Knight. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and so now we're in a position where they've thought of all sorts of ways in which they're going to share around those losses amongst amongst their uh, amongst the people that had their funds stored with Bitfinex. And, think, and all of those account holders are obviously very happy about that. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so imagine, imagine for a second that I had £1,000 in my bank and they said, right, well, because we were hacked, we were, we're going to take away £30 from your account or £300 from your account in, in some people's case um, just because we got hacked. And it's like, well, the liability structure of banking would never allow for that. So this blockchain space is really in the wild west so now they've come up with the crazy idea of well why don't you have some of our company equity even though we're not listed on a stock exchange anywhere even though we just had a massive hack yeah come invest in us but but and it's issued to you as well so you would sit there and you would have these new tokens that represent a claim on that company's future equity which i don't think has a legal precedent um and i'm I'm terrified that might not be legal but i've got to give them this it's it's pretty innovative Uh, (laughs) 
<laughs> you could draw parallels between that equity and the troubled assets uh, asset relief program, for example. Oh. But we'll not go there for now. Talk. <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, doing a TARP without sovereign authority shows a real sense of this kind of Uber-esque approach to regulation. It's a community <laughs> approach. I'm hoping that if the community accepted it and they assign a value to the token then there is obviously some value in that token, right? But then I guess the question becomes, how much is the company worth? You know, what's the valuation they're using in order to uh, to say, well, you know, you lost £100, therefore here's, you know, here's the equity that's worth that. But it's, the value is assigned by the market. It depends on what value the uh, token is traded at, right? So it's fair value in some sense. So essentially, the response to a massive security uh, issue <laughs> was to IPO. I, it's amazing what you can do. Bailouts by IPO. Yes, right. seriously, right? Yeah. And, you know, it's amazing what you're capable of and there's nobody there to tell you no. It, that, that's what's amazing to me. I mean, whether it's the DAO or Bitfinex, I'm surprised that the regulators haven't stepped in, right? I mean, imagine if this was a bank. We would have the major regulators of the world going completely ballistic about all of this stuff. And here we've got massive losses, to consumers, and uh, the regulators simply haven't stepped in, which really surprises me. Surely no regulator would want to go anywhere near that mess. Um, I mean, <laughs> well, I, think, I think the regular approach is like, okay, <laughs> you touch it first. But well, at the end of the day... approach with this one. Uh, hot potato, right? I mean, yeah. you're, go- you're wading into something that's just this hydra, this beast of just complications. Mm. You're going to set a precedent. You're going to create decisions. You're going to have to bring a lot of enforcement action. And you're not going to understand what it is you're touching because yeah. the regulators don't have cryptographers on staff. Yeah. I, I think that also the regulators have much bigger problems to go after with the regulated financial industry. So they're probably saying maybe we can leave this unregulated corner this dark alley of the financial industry and touch for a little bit, see how that experiment fares, and then we'll figure out how to regulate it, right? Or maybe they're still thinking about it and there'll be some enforcement action in the next couple of months. Yeah. Maybe they're um, using it as a nice test to see what that hands-off regulation might look like. I, I think, I think we had that, that before 2007. They, I mean, they nuked the <laughs> in, what, 2005, E-Gold got shut down? So E-Gold had been running for pushing 10 years without a banking license, you know, running a bank that operated in gold rather than in dollars. And it was 10 years before the regulators hit them. But when they landed, you know, they came through the front door with, you know, like a SWAT team. Yeah. So, you know, my <laughs> that, feeling... With that, all wouldn't, this, that wouldn't surprise me at all. No, not at all. I mean, you know, the, but that set of processes, I mean, on one hand, Madoff lost, what was it, 41, 42 billion? Bernie Madoff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so on one hand, it's kind of a rounding error compared to the errors which are made on Wall Street. So maybe it's one of those things where looking at, they're looking at the risk-reward ratio for yeah. allows messy innovation to flourish and wait for the consumers to start screaming. I think, I think also there's, right. th- there's an element of this messy innovation may actually produce something useful because the, the looks of it could potentially provide something that appears to be real-time reporting, appears to give transparency to financial markets, even though it's ripe for abuse and there are no rules around it with some sensible controls. The underlying technology could be valuable. So it's, uh, yeah. who is really invested in these bitcoins it's not my mum and dad it's not my my relatives you know who live in leicester it's people who are either speculating or experimenting or the winklehoff brothers or whatever speculating and experimenting definitely but i mean when i think of sophisticated investors i think of high net worth individuals with people who can hire consultants and lawyers and hedge fund managers right they are the sophisticated investors in my book not a bunch of developers sitting in a in a garage playing with their mum and dad's money, which I think we're talking about here. 
right? Okay. So, so I, I think these are consumers that need to be protected sometimes from themselves, like in the case of Lionel, ah, but right? you can't have it both ways. With the dolphin question, you were saying you know <laughs> we should we should you know we should leave that alone, and now you're saying well actually the state needs no, to protect them. No, I, I, I think they need to be informed. How but it both ways? It's, there's no contradiction. Hard- As you say, inherent contradiction. Having it both ways is why you need regulators, right? The regulator is there to make sure that you can have it both ways. Yeah. Because having it both ways is the nature of complex mess. Exactly. You're trying to innovate while you're also in. I mean, you want the economy to be more innovative. You wanted uh, some of this technology to develop, but you still need to protect consumers, right? I mean, I think these are questions of, in many ways, good taste, right? From the regulator's perspective, anything anybody that touched this stuff deserved what they were getting. It was clearly icky. (laughs) <laughs> no, we don't, we don't really know what that is, but say he crawled out of the internet, they could damn well go back there. So, you know, and that, and that notion that it's kind of like automatically marked as being as fishy as all hell. And I say this to somebody that, you know, really has worked with this stuff in a lot of detail. You could have said that about subprime mortgages, right? You were living in a, in a motorhome and you borrowed money from a bank and bad things happen. But that's not how you can go about protecting consumers. No, but it, I mean, it still has this word mortgage associated with there are a bunch of guys in gray suits telling you that it's worth something. That is true. With this, you've got a bunch of kids in sneakers telling you to buy their funny money that came off the internet. <laughs> so, <laughs> the sort of notion that there might be a certain kind of self-certifying process that if you're technically capable of negotiating the technology to the point where you can buy the stuff, that's essentially your accredited investor check. <laughs> you know, I, I can imagine that the conversation inside of regulators is like, is this getting to the point where ordinary people are complaining to us? Fair point. Right, because I think one of the issues is that most of the people that have taken the hit are strongly invested in the kind of crypto community of Merta, where they don't complain to the regulators in the hope that they can continue to build the future, mm. rather than large scale public outcry to the regulators, which when the regulators would roll mm. up their sleeves and just like, oh, this has gone too far. I yeah. think it's a really interesting question on that sort of, you know, you move to the Wild West, you live by the Wild West, and, you know, you can live in the East, but actually there's the, the freedom and something about like living in the Wild West, which, okay, there's not the law and order, but equally, yeah. you know, there's all kinds of crazy stuff that can happen. And I think people are doing a very strong job of maintaining a culture in which things like Bitfinex are being as, seen as being like, well, they're trying to take care of it. So there isn't this sense of running dad for a bailout. There isn't this sense of going to the regulators and crying foul. There's this sense of like, ugh, that's ugly, but you know, it's better than the alternatives. So they're trying to make self-governance work. Mm. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's one of those yeah. things where if they get enough time you know, think of think of if we managed to get a decent interface between the crypto community and the London arbitration community. Mm-hmm. So you did the entire thing with proper Ricardia contracts. Everybody is bound to binding arbitration in the event of something like this happening. Mm-hmm. Because if that had come out of an arbitrator's ruling, it would be essentially law. Yeah. Funny you mentioned Ricardian contract because, of course, Ian Gregg, the inventor of the Ricardian contract, now works for R3, oh, yes. who are, of course, working very closely with the banks and a lot of lawyers to figure out how you would make contracts that are simpler, that are not necessarily law themselves. So I'm negotiating a contract between two banks or between two people, and this contract is really a piece of software that does what the piece of paper said it said all along. And it's kind of this halfway house between the idea of code being law and the idea of uh, law being something that is implemented in code and code can read and, and kind of move on with, which is this middle ground. But you need the Wild West to kind of uh, be out there pushing the boundaries of what's possible and challenging that. So for, that so for the 99.99999% of people who don't know what a Ricardian contract is, including <laughs> me, could you give a br- very, very brief uh, description? Okay, so once upon a time in the 1990s, in the early days of the internet, 
a wizard called Ian Gregg figured out the secrets of space and time. <laughs> and specifically, what Ian figured out was this. You have a system that trades cryptographic funny money. But the hard part is, how do you define the cryptographic funny money? Right? You know, this number here refers to some number of F, this number here refers to some number of Bitcoin, this number here refers to some number of something else. You all know what these numbers are when you see them flying by, but when you ask what is it, what you hit is an enormous pile of code that implements a thing without ever defining it. Right? So there is no spec. So Ian basically suggested that you write a paper contract, a plain English contract, a legalese contract, which defines what the financial instrument is in legal terms, delegates authority to a pile of software which is identified inside of uh, the paper contract, everybody signs it, and that contract is what the technology implements. At which point there's a completely clear interface between the legal world and the technical world, yeah. rather than having the Bitcoin situation where you have a thing which exists but which has no canonical legal representation. So the lack of a canonical legal representation for Bitcoin is why there's been endless wrangling about whether it's a commodity or you know a stock or a money or whatever the heck it is that people do with it, right? I think it's a profoundly simple idea, and it's, it's extremely beautiful in the context of, let's say, the derivatives contracts, right? So they have a lot of preamble. Uh, insurance contracts have a lot of text. So all financial contracts have a lot of text that essentially represents the legal uh, language and then you have standardized structures and events that define what the contract so what happens over the life cycle of the contract Sorry, so to put it into, things, like, things like is does right yeah to put it into like um, my mum's language if you were to go buy um, let's say you're taking out a, a mortgage or you're, you're getting a, a letting arrangement you would go sign that piece of paper today and then when you, once you've signed that piece of paper somebody somewhere else takes that piece of paper keys it into a machine and you hope they've kind of done it right and then there's, there's software code but there's this human element in the middle where things can kind of go wrong and so the, this idea is that actually between that piece of paper and the computer code there is a direct link in some way um, especially around the digital signatures piece and yeah. then that direct link means that if anybody picks up the piece of paper afterwards and something goes wrong they know what computer code to look at and they know what that computer code does unlike the ethereum world and unlike the, especially the bitcoin world in which a smart contract the code itself is law yeah. which kind of leads us nicely into our next story i think it does. It does indeed. So one month after the Dow hack, millions of dollars worth of funds are unclaimed. Vinay, what do you reckon? Uh, okay, so this is one of those things where, you know, you kind of see the plane go into the side of the cliff, and even if everybody survives, it's still a bad day. <laughs> so... You know, one of the things that has been, frankly, a horrifying lesson, you know, I was a project manager for the release of Ethereum, right? I was in the heart of that community. It really was a huge part of that show. And I use the past tense because, frankly, we've mishandled everything around the DAO hack almost as badly as could be possibly imagined, right? The description that I gave this to somebody was like a bunch of 14-year-olds on a rowboat that's on fire. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I can't think of a single thing that's been done in managing this process that was done in the way that I would have done it if I'd been in charge. It's been massively entertaining, right? <laughs> yeah, so, so, so for those... Not for me. So for those of us, um, Ajit, just give us a, a brief view of, uh, one, as quickly as you can, what is Ethereum, and then what is the DAO, and then what happened with the hack? Because I think it's always worth recapping that for mm. somebody who's new to it. Yeah, so Ethereum is a, is a public 
uh, blockchain platform and it's a smart contract platform and it has its own cryptocurrency. It's also the most po- popular platform for smart contracts and for distributed applications. So developers will like this platform because they can build things they couldn't before. Banks will like it because they can automate things that were paper. You know, there's a lot of people interested in Ethereum. But, but there, is, there is also a lot of metaphysics and, you know, this whole religion around Ethereum that is going to take over the world and uh, it'll be the only, it'll be, it'll replace the internet and uh, all of the financial transactions and legal contracts will then go over the public blockchain and so on and so it's forth. It's so, fairly technically reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> so the whole world computer aspect is, is, is almost unreasonable. But at the same time, uh, we have, Ethereum is also a source of innovation for all the, all the work that banks and other, you know, industries are doing with, uh, so, with blockchains. And what was the DAO? The DAO was a smart contract, but if the the first day, Simon, you remember this, uh, the DAO came out and I tweeted, how come the SEC hasn't done anything about it? Because the DAO was a way for uh, people with Ether, which is the cryptocurrency, to essentially invest in a vehicle which uh, effectively issued securities. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's my interpretation of the DAO, and uh, Vinay, you, you should step in and tell me what yours is. And I said, how is the SEC not objecting to that? So I saw it more, sorry Vinay, uh, as being like this um, crowdfunding project that was designed to be kind of somewhat transparent. So you would give this software custody over um, a certain amount of money, and that software had a set of rules that delegated to some humans who could invest in projects. So think of this as like Kickstarter, but without the humans. Yeah, Kickstarter. Like <laughs> Kickstarter well, in ed- software. Equity Kickstarter. Yeah. Equity Kickstarter. Right? So That's exactly the software, point. Right? Right. Yeah. So this is very fiddly, right? I've heard a whole bunch of different legal opinion about what it is. Do you guys know um, Adam Vizari? I'm saying his name? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Adam Vizari? Vizari. Yeah. His take is that the DAO is probably an unincorporated association, but it might be a cooperative. Mm-hmm. Right, because they had enormous amounts of legal stuff before you could buy DAO tokens in the original crown sale, and if you look at that legal stuff from a particular angle, it might put the whole thing into the domain of being a cooperative, kind of de facto rather than de jure. Mm-hmm. So, exactly what it is, back to the Ricardian contract question, Ricardian contracts ought to define what the property is before you make a computer manage it. Mm-hmm. So what we've been doing is we've been making property with computers without ever defining it in a way that's visible to the legal system, which leaves you with post-factor definition yeah, exactly. after it explodes. It's like going around and basically putting padlocks on things and saying that you own them, and then if the padlock holds, you own it, and if somebody breaks the padlock, now you have to decide whether a crime was committed. Mm-hmm. And it, it really is that backwards. It creates a problem. And of course, then the DAO went horribly wrong. It was hacked, so they raised $150 million people in from a month. in a month, which I think was more than people ever expected them to raise. But actually, this $150 million became a giant target for, for hackers. And especially in this Wild West, Jason, as you described it, where there were no rules, people hadn't thought through the recourse necessarily of what would happen if it was hacked. And then it seemed like the only way to fix it was actually by changing the uh, the bedrock itself, the foundations, which is Ethereum, rather than the uh, rather than the roof of the house, which was which was the actual DAO itself, and, and that's where it gets into a, into sort of Greek mythology because this battle spawned mm. you know a new cryptocurrency. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it just gets crazy. Hydra, you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you chop a head off, and suddenly a new a new one appears. So let me put up a criterion opinion. Right. So the legal, the, the English language paper around the DAO that you had to sign before you could buy the DAO stuff initially, I seem to recall very clearly said that the smart contract is the final arbiter 
and all questions will be resolved. So if the smart contract happens to have an unintended feature yeah. through which somebody moves 50 mil, <laughs> I think that if the hacker had wound up in court, they could have made a very strong case that they had simply followed what the plain English said. And I don't think that would have got past the smell test with any reasonable judge, but it might have got them through one appeal before we threw them in Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> so yeah. that, that problem that you need the technical and the legal to be fully synchronized, one side of it. As for uh, the infamous etc. ETC, right? Uh, I think that etc. is going to turn out to be the big winner, right? The politics of Bitcoin have always been enormously effective, a flying wedge of libertarian rage, right? Uh, they've <laughs> never had any problems with social cohesion. They've been slick. They've been efficient. They've managed to conjure all of this value from the void, uh, but they've been unable to innovate technically. So if you could take the technology of Ethereum, which has been amazingly technically innovative, but its politics are weak sauce indeed, uh, and strap it to the political core of Bitcoin, I think you could see something that outcompetes both of its parents pretty easily. And at a technical level, let me suggest that it's a scheme. So if I was to send some Bitcoin to the Satoshi uh, accounts, which have billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin in them that's never been touched, I could prove that I've transferred that Bitcoin and it can't be redeemed. If the ETC people then had a slot machine that if I could prove destruction of Bitcoin, it would issue you ETC at a fixed exchange rate, mm. they could potentially provide people with a cryptographically secure exit from Bitcoin into ETC in a way that would conserve the total value pool of ETC plus Bitcoin at fixed peg. And if they do, took that route, I think that there is a decent chance that they could stand up a real third option for cryptocurrency. Um, and given how stalled Bitcoin has been on implementing smart contracts, I wonder if speculation along those lines could become catalytic for a kind of fourth revolution inside of the uh, whole blockchain space. I think, I mean, I'll, I'll sort of go against the grain and bring the technology conversation a little back to this human aspect of do consumers need to be protected from themselves, right? And... Uh, uh, I mean, a lot of people must have bought Ether for real money, right? I mean, for potentially British pounds and invested their savings into into this cryptocurrency and then invested it through this uh, investment vehicle. And now if we go back to what happened in, in equity markets before 1934, when the SEC's 1934 Act came about and SEC was instituted, there were a whole bunch of companies issuing uh, notes on paper and, you know, unregistered securities and shares. And a lot of people lost a lot of money. I mean, we could have made the same sort of argument, uh, saying it, look, we are innovating. We are doing something brand new. Maybe we should allow, be allowed to get away with it. And so I'm going to take a slightly unpopular position and say, uh, that I think there is something, uh, there was the DAO itself, uh, was an unregistered investment vehicle. It should have been restricted. Uh, and, and the community sort of, uh, in its enthusiasm sort of uh, did itself a great disservice by letting it happen. So imagine you're a listener of this podcast and imagine you heard about this thing called the Dow and your friends are saying, look, this Dow's raising a lot of money. Uh, it could be a new type of venture capital firm. Uh, this thing's going to make a lot of money. All you're going to do is put a couple of grand in it and I guarantee you this is a surefire bet. So you're like, oh, well, I've got a few things I was going to pay for. It's saved up for a holiday. Not going to have the holiday. I'll take out some money from a credit card and I'll put it into this Dow thing. Yeah. And then suddenly your money starts to disappear. Maybe you're How would you with. feel? Exactly. How would you feel? And I think that's the point of real question here is real people lost real money. Um, and well, I think it did go beyond just the, the people that know a little bit about software. It was a bit of a victim of its own success, really, attracting more people that 
like you say, didn't know what really they were getting into. Absolutely. Absolutely. And but, but again, there is also a technical point, right? We need to, uh, when we combine smart contracts and blockchains, and if blockchains are really going to be immutable ledgers, as, and we can't unwind things if they go wrong, mm-hmm. then uh, what does that mean for blockchains as the underlying ledgers for smart contracts and the events that they process? Well, so I'm a big fan of non-repudiatable payments, right? I think half of the economy works well when the buyer takes the risk and half of the economy works well when the seller takes the risk. And to get a fully efficient economy, you need both repudiatable and non-repudiatable payment instruments. Right now, we only have repudiatable payments. So I think there's definitely a role for non-repudiatable payments to overall optimize economic efficiency. Absolutely. But how much um, expertise do you need before we give you a non-repudiatable payments option and say you're on your own? Mm. Yeah, no, I was thinking that let's say we have a private blockchain that uses a, the Ethereum platform or a variant of it and something goes wrong inside a bank's infrastructure with with one of the smart contracts that they're potentially using for loans. Now, and it, the ledger is immutable apparently because the whole system relies on the immutability. What go, happens then? They'll just go to the state for a bailout like they always do. <laughs> <laughs> and on that, we'll move on before the, uh, before the lawyers come knocking at the door. Um, so, digital asset to open smart contract language. Ajit, what do you think? Uh, I, I, think I think that's a good move. And, uh, you know, I was talking to Lee earlier about this. You know, Could, you, so, can you, again, for the uneducated audience, just give a little background, at least for me and Lindsay? <laughs> what is a yeah. smart contract like? So a smart contract is, uh, as we described it earlier, is essentially uh, a contract implemented in software or any 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 piece of software that processes a bunch of events or you know responds to data and does some work, mm-hmm. right? So I've bought my um, tenancy agreement with the landlord, and I agree that at the end of every month I will pay in a rent amount of this month, this amount for twelve months. And instead of then having to go set up a standing order to do that, the contract itself can pull the money from my bank. Yeah, so you can press a button on the web page, and some system in the background can generate a contract in software. And, and then that contract is, so if you're somebody who actually, uh, gets a lease every three months and you keep moving like some of the students do, yeah. then instead of uh, filling up a lot of paperwork every time, you can actually press buttons on a web page and keep moving houses. But essentially this is either driven by some kind of event that the, um, the contract can learn about or some kind of passage of time that then moves some kind of asset from one account to another. Yeah. So it processes a whole bunch of events. When you make a payment, uh, something happens. When you actually default, it does something else, right? So okay. there's a piece of code instead of a whole bunch of people sitting in a back office giving you uh, oh, yeah. well, <laughs> terrible phone calls. There is a piece of code that does that for you. It's code with legal authority to do stuff on your behalf that you've given to it. So it's, it's kind of code that, well, uh, it could it, become that, right? It can be. Legal, legal <laughs> authority is tricky. It's code which will do stuff for you. Yeah. Whether it has legal authority to do stuff is a separate question. Yeah, legal authority sits outside of the the contract itself. Sometimes in the in the court of law or in the jurisdiction you're actually yeah. operating. Smart contract was a really good name for this. Then that's yeah, what smart contract was yeah. probably a terrible. Name. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean actually, it's a very technical name. The old good the old good name for this was intelligent agents. Right. Okay. So like smart contracts are simply intelligent agents. Right. And. You know, intelligent agent hasn't been used seriously as a description of products for maybe 30 years, right? That is a well out of fashion term. But a lot of the original visionary stuff about one day we will all have little software robots that go off and do jobs for us, that was intelligent agents. Mm-hmm. And smart contracts are definitely a class of intelligent agents. They just do what's happening, basically. 
But most most importantly, there are so many, like I, I'm, I sit in financial services and that's where I focus. A lot of financial contracts have a lot of paper behind them and it's impossible to process all that paper or efficiently. Uh, banks and insurers have large back offices that invest, spend a lot of consumer money mm-hmm. and it eventually costs the pension funds and the small investor money. But smart contracts to me are a way of taking out all of this back office and paperwork and replace it with automated agents, as when I said, and you know, make loans insurance and derivatives and everything else in the financial system much more efficient. So why is it important that they have their own language? Um, is there something here about the, the language they're written in and the, the software code they're written in that needs to change? Definitely, it, it, uh, it reduces uncertainty and risk, right? So let's take an example of the DAO itself now. It was a custom-built smart contract written in a piece of code. There were two people, especially Vlad and Emin, who came out with an analysis of the 20 vulnerabilities in that piece of code, right? When you actually create a higher level language for let's say derivatives or for insurance or something else, and then you create this and you can actually test the translation of that domain specific language, which is like language for derivatives. I'm being slightly technical. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can just test it once. And then the, the people, business analysts and lawyers who do not necessarily have uh, software expertise, but know a lot about the business can then write contracts without the fear that they might make a mistake in coding. So it's closer to the old, what you see is what you get type editors, the drag and drops of the yeah. early days of building the internet. <laughs> you're letting, exactly, you're letting somebody else <laughs> test the technology and you're getting a pe- the people who understand the business to then write uh, a piece, a contract in the language they understand. I think, I think a good example of this is ISDAS, right? Exactly. So there's this, you know, these extremely sophisticated beasts of contracts I bet 99% of the people that are buying and selling and creating this does could not recreate even the superstructure of the contracts that they're working with from memory. Mm-hmm. Right? You just include that slap of technology and off you go to the races. Whether it's in legal code or whether it's in uh, you know software code, it's still this slab that ordinary people use and trust will perform correctly. Exactly. And there are some people who are really good at writing contracts and there are some people who are really good at writing code. And they're not the same people. But, but I guess in some way, the domain-specific language, this smart contract language, has to be then built on building blocks. That, and then deciding what those building blocks are, especially as the as smart contracts can arguably do more interesting, clever things than a traditional financial instrument might do, becomes interesting because you, you, there's a danger. You might recreate, well, just the old-fashioned way of doing things. Well, I mean, so how far down the rabbit hole do you want to go? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so before we talked about this very kind of uh, sort of vaporous Ethereum's world computer thing without getting into what world computer might be, right? So the basic idea of this world computer thing is that you have a single general ledger for everything. And wherever you are in the world, you have access to the general ledger. You can buy, you can sell, you can trade, you can transfer property, you can use services and smart contracts. So it goes everywhere that the internet goes. But there's a single spine which has absolute truth behind it when it comes to property rights negotiations. So kind of sort of what Wikipedia is for, you know, pub trivia. You have something <laughs> like that, but for mortgage ownership, mm-hmm. right? Single source of truth for the entire world. So I am not remotely sure that Ethereum is going to make it all the way up that cliff, but it has certainly gotten a third or halfway up in that just about every financial institution in the world is now building smart contracts in Ethereum internally. Or so, some variant of it, yeah. Or some variant of Ethereum. But, you know, that approach, nobody in their right mind who understands the technology industry is going to suggest that the first mover will automatically be the thing that becomes globally dominant. 
So I'm glad to see that there are a bunch of competitors coming out with ideas. Ethereum has the ability to evolve new programming languages that still run on the existing code because it has a compiler architecture with a you know a virtual machine blah, 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 technology. <laughs> but the reliability stuff inside of this, what we're still trying to get to is a situation where you can basically define the contracts mathematically rather than in language. And this, I think, is the critical error that we made at a semantic level inside of the Ethereum thing. We decided that Ethereum was going to be easy to use, so we made it programmable in languages that look like JavaScript, which is what the web is written in. This is a conceptual error, right? Because it turns out that the kind of people that are good at writing JavaScript should never be like a <laughs> 200-line program that moves $150 million, right? Uh, the reason that I fell back to doing a conventional venture capital fund uh, or venture capital project, the exact legal structure TPA. But the reason that I'm doing that using conventional legal instruments right in the most, you know, white bread way I can possibly imagine is because I want to invest in all the things that the DAO is going to invest in, but I want to invest in those things using really simple approaches that are firmly grounded in the real world because we're not in a position where we can have two sets of risks simultaneously. We can't risk all the investor money on a bucket marked smart contract and then go and invest in a bunch of hybrid technology. It's just too much risk of one back. And taking digital asset holdings particularly, right? Yeah. They've been working on uh, on specifically settlements and clearing for about um, a year and a half yeah. at least. And they have developed, uh, they've hired some very senior bankers. They have a lot of expertise in this space. So they are uh, definitely one of the most credible players along with a few others. So, I mean, if they are giving back to the community through Hyperledger and through uh, the open sourcing the language, I think that's a that's a that's a very good step. This it's this idea of open sourcing a thing that they've built is is an interesting play, isn't it? Because like they they definitely are um, capitalists and they want to own a, a piece of the market and a piece of upside. But actually, if everybody agreed on this language in which we were going to model contracts in the future then actually, one, that makes them potentially really valuable because they're the ones that understand it the most. Absolutely. And, and then the person who owns the platform makes the money. Yeah. Right? So, and the way you sometimes own the platform is by open sourcing it and giving it away for free. Well, Ethereum to win is, at the end. Ethereum is already open source. Yeah. Right? Started it. So what will happen is if, if their language turns out to be great, somebody will build a compiler for their language which will allow you to use their language to write smart contract on Ethereum. And this is kind of how software is, right? Everything that's good connects to everything else, which is good because if it doesn't connect, somebody builds an adapter. What I want to know is where are the mathematicians, right? If you want to do things like theorem provers so you can definitively prove that the smart contract code here will only move value in these five ways depending mm. on these sets of inputs, you need real computer scientists, mm. right? I, I, I narrowly avoided winding up at the Laboratory for the Foundations of Computer Science in Edinburgh 25 years ago and dedicating my entire life to mucking around with theorem provers, thank God. So, you know, I have just enough of a grasp of this to know that that's the direction that we need to be moving in. But what I don't see is the fundamentals of computer science guys marching towards the smart contracts is the point where they all get very, very wealthy. And, you know, somebody's got to go over there and tell them this is where the money is and they should all, you know, come over here and do this. Because without it, we're never going to get reliable software. Yeah, and I, I sat next to a lot of uh, strats at Goldman for, for a few years. And 
uh, one thing I realized is that uh, there are people who are very good at law. There are people who are very good at uh, understanding the pricing of derivatives. And then there are people who are, who are good engineers and can write production quality software. And they were never the same people. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and Vinay, this is the point about specialism, right? So there will be people who understand derivative contracts and are really good at understanding them and writing them correctly. And there will be people who write that translation layer, as you said, uh, and the adapter that translates that into a piece of code that actually runs reliably. Right? But, but the whole thing has to fit together. But the holy grail is if we make it simple enough that a single individual can master all those disciplines deeply enough to get the job done. What you get is another generation of wealth concentration because you have you know these kind of wizards who are pricing the stuff, writing the legalese and writing the code simultaneously because they're using standardized modules for each of those things. And if somebody builds that kind of tooling, you know the entire world will change because you'll finally have a situation where Bill, Bill Gates is able to do his own legal work as well as creating the software that maintains the systems, as well as being able to price the assets. I, I think we should not uh, forget that each one of these layers is so complex and it takes years to actually master any one of these layers. You could spend a lifetime being either a really good computer scientist or a really good lawyer or a really good financial services person. But that's why we use right. modularity, right? So we yeah. take all the complexity, we wrap it in a module, we simplify, we build an interface, we build an API. Yeah, indeed. And what the computer people are great at is, so you're telling me you use that same template 700 times in this organization and everyone is in a separate Word file? You need a content management system. You need transclusion. You know, we have operators. This is the great fundamental skill of the techs, is we have operators for eating complexity and emitting simplicity. Mm-hmm. And if we do that to the legal systems, which we're going to get around to eventually because they're yeah. really becoming a pain in the ass, you know, you could see an attempt to go through and modularize law to the point where you wind up with, for example, legal assistant tools that use standard legal modules and you express your intention and they bowl them together. You do know that you're making the big law firms very worried as you say that. Well, why call it automation, right? Right. I'd argue against the embodiment of that in one person because actually a really good example where that doesn't happen is in a good startup. You know, you really do have product people who, are, who their personality and their whole worldview is about the customer value proposition, how it works, their life, fitting it in. You've got engineers, you know, with Asperger's who are, you know, just the crazy, crazy focus sort of delivery. But and, you know, and you've I got design, argue, you've got all kinds of, yeah, stuff. you know, you've got a, a special forces team, and, and, a and group of people to deliver yeah. something. You, you've got to the point where, or you will get to the point where it, it, it's like the internet was, you know, digital asset are kind of playing for this other players are, are wanting to be the go-to you know wikipedia or facebook for for this and are you going to get to that point with where there is only one winner in the sense of so there was this really interesting things. article by um, fred wilson of union square ventures mm-hmm. talking about the idea of winner take all platforms have been kind of the net result of uh, a number of technologies. So you get Uber, you get Airbnb, where all of the value is extracted by these winner-take-all platforms. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of central bankers having the same discussion, which is actually this is creating a lot of deflation. Products and services are getting so much cheaper that the rest of the economy is actually suffering because prices have never fallen as fast as they are falling right now, which you think would be amazing. But actually, prices falling really, really hard means people lose jobs because companies start losing money. So the way around that is central banks have to cut interest rates and then they have to print money, which means we're storing up a problem for the future. So cutting interest rates is actually a a response to too much productivity by these winner-take-all platforms and them extracting 
kind of all of the value. So this idea of fat protocols is what um, Fred Wilson called it. This idea that you would have a protocol that created something that was more equitable, where there couldn't be one winner that takes it all, mm-hmm. where contracts could be more peer-to-peer in some way, but you had the same level of assurance you would as if there was one winner-take-all type platform, is a really interesting idea for where the future of things like Ethereum and Steemit and um, also stuff like this um, digital asset. I see digital asset, R3, Exony on one side of this conversation, mm-hmm. Ethereum, Bitcoin, Steemit, all those guys on the other side of the conversation. And, what's and the gradually difference? over sort one of, side wants to make money out of it, the other side. Well, I think oh, one no, side no. is inside yeah. the system and inside existing regulations and laws and the other is outside it. Mm-hmm. And over time, over a five to 10 year time horizon, these two things start to collide. Now, uh, Simon uh, and, and Vinay, so we are creating some monopoly, monopolies with new technology. You know, I mean, if you could consider Uber as a monopoly for taxis, but at the same time, we are breaking the monopoly of the black cabs, right? So now almost anyone can uh, drive a taxi and sign up with Uber as long as they meet the, the, I mean, the minimal norms. So, 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 to, so to some extent, we are creating monopolies, big global monopolies, but to some extent, but in we that are distributing sense, as a consumer, you can choose which one you you uh, you go with whether it's exactly. a black cab or an uber but with something like this in the financial services industry considering so, how huge it is y- you know as a consumer you're not having you wouldn't necessarily it doesn't really matter to you it matters to the banks and what that the, they're all on the same page yeah but, but at the same time like whether it's ripple or digital asset holdings or r3 or any of these they're not going to dominate the entire financial services industry. They will potentially build platforms or operate certain platforms. There will be some one of these that's really good at payments. There will be somebody who is optimized for settlements and clearing. There will be another one that's optimized for digital identity. Mm-hmm. And, and they will probably dominate that space and be very, very good at it and specialize in it. But I doubt that there is going to be this uh, distributed ledger platform that dominates all of these layers of the financial services. Yeah, stuff. It's not going to happen. There, there, there won't not... be one blockchain to rule them all and in the <laughs> yeah. darkness blind to them. Yeah. <laughs> is that not going to make things more complicated? Well, because they will have to yes, talk yes it does. to each other. And, and the big conversation in, in the banking circles now is about how do you make all of those new distributed ledgers talk to each other? Because yeah. you're going from a system where every bank operated their own ledger so basically this big book of who was who, what. Um, they, they've got their own like giant book of you know ledger. And, and this doesn't talk to anything else particularly well. It kind of does, but it's a bit slow and a bit terrible. Um, to a system where they're more mutualized, so 5 and 10 and 12 banks share one, uh, to a system where maybe all of them share one. But then do you start to do that by having a network of networks? right? So do you build these 10 banks and then in the UK and then these 10 banks in Europe and then these 10 banks in the US and then they build a network of those 10 banks and 10 banks and 10 banks and that network of networks is actually the thing that really brings the transformation, not the building of those individual networks themselves, which is which is kind of like the internet, right? So the internet started out as just mm. a network is a network of networks. Now let's let's not assume that there will be ten banks, right? So I, I think we are talking okay. about uh, the, the whole legal structure of these financial services platforms, and I keep emphasizing the word platforms might change a little bit, as in uh, it may not just be ten banks and ten banks and ten banks connected, but uh, application optimized platforms, right? Bond trading is different from equities fair, trading fair, is different yeah. from OTC clearing and settlements. So and then these uh, plat there will be platforms that are specialized and dominate one of these spaces. 
and then they somehow need to talk to each other and maybe so that's the, that's the ledger for the cash token so on the retail side somebody builds a platform to track mortgages in the UK and that needs to speak to the one that does the the derivative that you know the the credit default swaps oh, the securitization right? platform yeah, or yeah. Like so there are many ways this might evolve i mean does the, that not get to the point where it's so complicated that all these reasons we would want to do this like Cutting costs, saving. No, no, hassle. because I, I lost. It actually becomes more complicated. Lindsay, I lost four years of my life doing reconciliation. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, it can only get simpler from here. <laughs> yeah, it's already insanely complicated. Except we're trying to follow that complication with people with pieces of paper. Uh, so, like, insanely complicated is normal for banking. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah. here's the thing, right? You know, there isn't. You know, look at the stats, right? The big Silicon Valley operators. Right, Facebook, etc., etc., etc. If Facebook tomorrow morning issues 1.2 billion people, right, with a Facecoin account that's based on some kind of blockchain technology or other cryptographic instrument, they're not only the largest bank in the world; they're the, one of the largest currencies in the world, and they could roll that out in a weekend. Mm-hmm. It's just not that hard, right? So, by the time we really get around to doing this thing, we're not going to go after the banks individually. Because this is basically like playing whack-a-mole with you know spiders in your house, right? Yeah. What we're going to go after is we're going to go after the currencies and the regulator who break the legitimacy of the state to control money, and then what you'll see is this enormous transfer of legitimacy to the internet as essentially a sovereign entity, and it might be uh, wrapped in a corporate form like Facebook. But when you think about how easy it would be for Facebook to turn on a currency with that kind of scale, you begin to understand the latent power which is in Silicon Valley. They're going to go after the nation state eventually. The nation state has failed to deliver on climate change. It's failed to deliver on social justice. It's failed to deliver even on geopolitical stability, right? Bad errors by central governments with nuclear weapons have wrecked global trade in the last 15 years. And there's no guarantee that Silicon Valley will take that line down for the rest of history. And I, would hate to, I would hate and, to set up a debate between yourself and Izzy Kaminsker on that. That could be really yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, there is no reason for me to believe that the Silicon Valley will do a better job. I mean, because well, we have lived yeah. through that with Just investment like banks. Veal, they certainly you know, didn't do a better it. job of oh. distributing wealth in governments or no, making no, a more efficient marketplace. I didn't say they do a better right. job. Right? Yeah. I am not for the rise of the nerd Reich. You heard it first. You heard it first, yeah. But that said, right? right? The idea that you wind up with kind of, you know, God King autocrats real humanity because democracy has given us Donald Trump. That's exactly how the Roman Empire <laughs> Right, I'm definitely going to stop here before we get to uh, discussions of Nazi Germany and uh, uh, what's the, the Star internet law? Star, Star Trek. That's where we're heading to. So, um, so thank you to my guests. We're going to, uh, to go to an ad now. Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Thanks very much to our sponsor. Uh, coming back in, we've got the story of the week. And the story of the week is settlement on a blockchain for banks. This is the news that uh, BNY Mellon, uh, UBS, Deutsche Bank, uh, a company called ICAP, some of you may have heard of, uh, have all bandied together uh, with a small company called Clearmatics uh, to build something called Utility Settlement Coin. Uh, based on a solution by Clearmatics, uh, aims to let financial institutions pay for securities such as government 
government debt, bonds, uh, equities, being stocks and shares, without waiting for traditional money transfers to be completed. Instead, they would use digital coins that are directly convertible into cash at central banks. This, importantly, cuts the cost and the time of post-trade settlement and clearing. So, I, I want to throw this open to Ajit, really. What problem are we trying to solve, really? And, and words that come to my mind are, are settlement risk and, and credit risk. So, tell me what settlement risk is. So, I'm, I'm a bank. I've bought some government debt or I've bought this, this stock and this share. I've now got all this time and cost to deal with. What's actually happening here? So, uh, I mean, uh, a large investment bank, for example, let's take the example of UBS who have come up with this idea, right? I mean, they are, at any time, they are processing a lot of trades and they, as a result, they have liabilities, uh, which means they owe cash to a lot of people, right? And then in order to uh, fulfill some of those liabilities, they need to make sure that they have, the cash has arrived from another trade where their counterparties owe cash to them. Right. If they don't get the cash, they can't pay the cash out to other counterparties. And in fact, in uh, back in the 80s, uh, a bank called Herstad Bank went down precisely because they just didn't receive the cash on wow. cash that was owed to them. Right. So that's uh, banks need to manage liquidity and liquidity is basically their cash position. Right. Now, if they don't get the cash, they, they, they have to default. And then the whole system, because of the uh, there is systemic risk because a whole bunch of counterparties owe money to each other. And if one of these large counterparties fails on a $100 million trade, then a whole bunch of other counterparties can potentially fail. So you've got a domino effect. You've got a domino effect. That's precisely So, right. So really, um, as a bank, I need to know I'm getting paid. I really need to know I'm getting paid because if I don't get paid, I could go. I could default, and then I could cause a whole, cause a whole bunch, bunch of contagion. Of and how do I know I'm getting paid today? Like, what's the fix for that now? Because surely there's got to be some. Uh, what do I post collateral? What's what's, so, what's that all about? So uh, we. Uh, this is how we came up with this really complicated chain of intermediaries for settlements and clearing. Right. So if you look at uh, how settlements and clearing happen today, somebody holds the assets on your behalf. Right. So let's say if I'm trading bonds through Euroclear, UBS and Goldman are trading bonds through Euroclear, then uh, they, Euroclear is the, pers- is, the, is the entity that maintains book entries on your behalf. And there is a, there is a mechanism called delivery versus payment that makes sure that the, at the very instant that, let's say, you and I are trading bonds and you sold me 100 million worth of bonds, then at the moment that Simon sends, uh, sends Ajit the bonds and the bonds are now owned by Ajit, at the exact same instant, the cash needs to be transferred to Simon, right? That's called delivery versus payment, and it needs to happen at the same time. Because if it doesn't happen at the same time, there is credit risk, which means you may never get the cash, and then there is settlement risk, as in I may not be able to pay. So, um, you know, and delivery versus payment happens through a large chain of intermediaries. There are custodians that hold assets and CSDs that do these book entries on your behalf. Of and you so and because there's a lot of these intermediaries, is that making it slow? Is that making it costly? It's definitely making it costly. First of all, there is limited transparency, right? Because there is a third party that's maintaining the ledger on our behalf. And if you look at uh, uh, some of these large intermediaries like DTCC and Euroclear, on repo trades, for example, there can be three to five percent failure rates today, and and wow. resolving the cost of these percent of all of, of, these the, trades. of the trades can actually fail sometimes. So and and it involves a lot of reconciliation mm-hmm. to sort of get past these errors, and reconciliation is time consuming. Uh, and uh, investment banks maintain large back office operations staff to essentially perform a lot of this reconciliation and 
process confirms and fails. There is elaborate infrastructure built around that essentially adds to the cost of settlements and clearing, which is eventually paid by asset managers and the small investors that then invest in the pension funds. Right? So there's, there's all of this inefficiency because we've got these people in the middle who have aging technology and a lot of times people and, and paper processes that are trying to figure out what's actually happened to try and get around this risk that I need to get to need to know I'm getting paid and I need to know I've made the payment successfully. They do provide a lot of, uh, absolutely right. I mean, uh, Euroclear and DTCC, for example, provide a lot of value-added services on top of these things. You know, there is securities lending. Yeah. The cost of trading for very large volumes or very large amounts is actually very, very low. But then once you add up the cost of all of this infrastructure and that banks have to maintain to support this complex chain of intermediaries, it adds to a lot of transaction cost for, for pension funds and eventually for you and me. Sure. So it strikes me then that those intermediaries may, would they want this technology or would they not want this technology? And it's probably worth, before we get into that, just just describing what is utility settlement coin to the best of your knowledge. And we'll, we'll get Robert Sams onto a future podcast yeah, and so, have him describe it as well. So as, as Sam said in his Coindesk interview, right, that uh, most trades, for example, bonds and equity trades uh, have a cash leg to them, as in eventually we are exchanging assets for cash. So I, uh, you sell me your house and then you get cash in return. You sell me a bond and then you get cash in return. So and, and you need to have delivery versus payment between this asset leg and the cash leg. So at the same moment that uh, we exchange the asset, we also exchange the cash in the other direction. And unless there is a cash token on a distributed ledger, it's really, really difficult to ensure delivery versus payment. And more importantly, this cash token needs to be uh, it needs to have no market risk. It needs to be in, in, in cash, right? It's, it needs to have immediate cash value. And then it needs to be backed by a balance that's actually maintained by a central bank or a really stable regulated intermediary on our behalf. And so this, this intermediary on our behalf is a central bank and fully backed cash at a central bank effectively gives us that. It's, it's, so what we're talking about is a form of synthesized central bank money, which is very different to commercial bank money. So talk about the difference between commercial bank money. What is commercial bank money, first of all? So uh, ultimately, all money is a balance that somebody maintains on our behalf. Right? So That's balance the is being a computer somewhere says that um, Ajit uh, has £100 in his bank account. That's exactly right. So let's say I deposit uh, £100 million with JP Morgan. Mm-hmm. And I love how you went from £100 to £100 million. Um, <laughs> You know, it's the magic of thinking big. So, I mean, I spent most of my career in investment banking yeah, yeah. and technology, so the big numbers rule. <laughs> and uh, so let's say I maintain £100 million in JP Morgan and, you know, you maintain £50 million with JP Morgan and, uh, and you sell me £25 million worth of bonds at the same time. And if, if let's say, we are doing this through JP Morgan as a... Uh, as the intermediary, then they maintain the balances, and at the same time that they assign the ownership of bonds to me, they assign they moved uh, 25 million from my account to your account. That's maintained with JP Morgan. The trouble is, there is credit risk associated with JP Morgan, right? A central bank does not go down, mm-hmm. but uh, a large investment bank, well, Lehman Brothers did go down. Yeah, they right. Did go down so regularly. there is credit <laughs> risk, and as a result, there is settlement risk on some of these balances. So it's really important that the token eventually is issued by a central bank that has the power to print money and does not have credit risk associated with it. I think so, when, I, when I first got into financial services and banking, that was the thing that most surprised me that such a small fraction of 
of what we know as money is cash, is pound coins or five pounds. <laughs> and it's getting smaller. It's just such a right. tiny amount. Actually getting into founding some digital banks, finally understanding that actually if Jason sends Lindsay £20 from Barclays to HSBC and Lindsay sends £20 from you know, HSBC to Lloyd's, that actually those aggregate movements of cash across the economy aren't like armoured vans of money moving around, but actually just a, a small spreadsheet change in the Bank of England. Exactly. Sort of, and £528 billion worth of changes every day. Yeah, right. uh, just at that one space, that it is this ledger change. Yep. You know, this settlement that goes on. And I think when people look at cryptocurrencies and go, oh, wow, you know, there's just this this ledger that moves money. It's like it happens already in a, in a centralized form. <laughs> exactly. Right. Someone somewhere is managing, whether it's an investment bank or a central bank. And I think that's, that to me was just like mind-blowing moment. It is, know, because it I is. think you grow up thinking money is pound coins you think it's you think there is a pound coin somewhere everywhere or or a us dollar for for every bit of money but actually no most money sits on a computer somewhere and because most money sits on a computer we and most money sits on a computer inside of a bank's computer and those banks can default then therefore you create all of these systems to deal with the risk but the problem with those systems is they've become very costly over the past sort of 20, 30 years. And they, they, we built them with the technology we had at the time. So the technology we had at the time was, by today's standards, very, very slow. And, and, and there is other costs. So, for example, transaction reporting is extremely expensive. There is so much money that banks and regulators spend on just uh, reporting transactions, reconciling transactions from different counterparties to make sure that there is no market manipulation. You so can take out all of that with a distributed ledger. Reconciliation is such an important point in banking, right? So, fundamentally, the central bank doesn't know what's inside my database <laughs> or inside Jason's or inside yeah. Lindsay's or inside Vinny's or inside uh, yours, actually. That's four years of my life, then. <laughs> so, so what we do is we send messages to each other. Um, and it, this is kind of like uh, almost like a Chinese whispers thing. I'm going to send a message in one language and you're going to receive it in another language. And, and think about what happens when Lehman Brothers goes down. Nobody really knows who owes who what. Mm-hmm. Right? So everybody panics. And then they just want to sell. They just want to get out of the gate and buy treasury bonds. Who issues the treasury bonds? The Federal Reserve, the central bank, that's the only guy we can trust when that happens. So Richard Brown talks about shared state of fact. Right? Shared facts are really, really important. So, Vinay, yours? I was going to say, but you can't trust the central banks. Right? Countries go bankrupt regularly. <laughs> Currencies go into hyperinflation. The world is filled with central banks you can't trust. And a lot of the stress on the euro is that nobody knows whether or not uh, you're going to be able to trust the euro as a central bank or whether the eurozone is going to break up into a bunch of chunks. So, I think you make an interesting point, Vinay, but I think as a person... Compared to... Uh, as a person uh, who... You know, as somebody inside of a bank, you can't assume that the central bank is of, of the euro... Well, and certainly if sterling and the US dollar is going to fail, you can't make that assumption. But it's I mean, even worse, right? It's even worse. Because remember, the currency speculators are trading against this all the time. Right when you know Soros basically just pounded, was it Thailand? Yeah. Remember, I'm trying to remember which country it was that he just wrecked. Right? Well, he did short the Bank of England, the pound yeah, way the back pound. in but, the eighties, you know, but right? that was a small thing, right? There are countries that Soros actually really damaged, and when you've got you know speculators who are assuming that you could break central banks and that that's an instrument of policy, and bankers assuming that the central bank will always be there. Clearly, there's a problem in the market, which is the bankers are operating in a smaller space than the currency traders are, right? Yeah. But all of this complexity is completely incidental. This only happens post Bretton Woods, 
right? Pre-Bretton Woods, none of this existed. Money was gold, end yes. of story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, now it's just a number. Right. Yeah. So what we've got is this very, very dangerous game of let's pretend, in which we assume that these numbers were shuffling around correspond to actual value, and of course we know they don't. And then you get to the conclusion of that process, is, which was why rather than using physical scarcity to manage our economies on Bretton Woods, why don't we use mathematical scarcity instead, which is the chain of thought that leads you to Bitcoin. Right. So the idea however, of, but, but however, if I'm going to exchange 100 million worth of bonds, I'm not going to do it for Bitcoin. Because there's not enough of it to be able to... So we're in a world at the moment where there is, there's a lot of capital out there that needs to be traded, and there isn't enough liquidity um, really to be able to move it, especially in something scarce. Yes. So we've got an economy that's become too rich for its own good to be effective using scarcity as a model. So therefore, you have to move to something else. And this is what um, a lot of the IMF, indeed, um, the uh, I don't know what the IMF stands for. Uh, International Monetary Fund. There we go. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> the IMF. Uh, they came out and, and they, they looked at the um, the recession in the seventies and said that that was really what caused a lot of the recessions back then. Is the Bretton Woods based model meant that there was too much liquidity that came out of the world in the forties, fifties, and sixties that meant that you couldn't actually trade it. So scarcity wasn't an effective model to move money. Now we're in this double header position where we've got um, too much liquidity and nowhere that the liquidity can actually generate a return. So you need something to really change how money moves around the world. Enter blockchain. Hopefully, it starts to solve a bit of that problem. I do not think it's a panacea um, for solving no, no, you, you, Now, you've lost me a bit there. Unpack that a bit. Okay, so uh, What's scarcity, the metaphor that explains that? scarcity <laughs> says there's only so much gold in the world, yep. right? And therefore, uh, if I have something that's scarce, I can rely on its value potentially only going up, and I know it's tradable, and I know it will always be redeemable. However, if there's only so much of a thing, and I've got more potential value in the world than there is of that thing, then I've got too much to trade and I'm not enough to trade it with. Same so, with gold and same with Bitcoin. Okay. Right. So so there's only $8 billion worth of Bitcoin in the world um, and a bank on a given day will move a couple of hundred billion, if not a few trillion. So I can't use, I can't move a couple of trillion through something that there's only 8 billion of. Yeah. So it's like a giant, I'm trying to you know swallow a shark whole. You know, it, it, <laughs> <laughs> the dolphin. It's a dolphin. <laughs> but this is why the Bitcoin, right? This is why the Bitcoiners will tell you that Bitcoin's natural value is sixty thousand dollars, right? Of course they will. But anyway, so, so I'll, I'll come back to UBS for a little bit, right? And their and their utility coin. There is another aspect to this, which is fragmentation of liquidity. Let's assume that there are multiple distributed ledgers in the world. There is a distributed ledger for settling bonds. There is a distributed ledger for settling equities. There is a distributed ledger for settling maybe OTC and clearing OTC derivatives, right? Now, you need a token that's essentially is transferable across all of these ledgers at some point, because otherwise you're going to hold a deposit against uh, a balance that represents your money in against one ledger and then your money against another ledger, and you need an, a token that's essentially interchangeable or uh, represents the same amount of value across all of these, otherwise you're going to fragment your liquidity pools. Yeah, and, and that creates more that's cost. Amazing. Exactly. That's amazing. Right. That creates That's why cost. it has to be a central bank issued digital cash token. Yes. Wow. And I think that's a perspective that is so tangible. If you're sitting in a bank right now and you've worked anywhere near a treasury function, that should make a lot of sense from um, a a capital efficiency standpoint. Banks need to be capital efficient right now. They're in a position where interest rates are low. They're not making a lot of money. Um, More capital efficiency would completely help them. Holding cash is not good. 
Owning cash is not good. So to pay, park it at a central bank and move it a lot faster and, and then put that liquidity to work in something that does generate me a return, it's kind of like you as an individual going out and putting your money into a bank account that lost money or having the choice of putting your bank account money into an asset that makes you money. Which are you going to do? Well, actually, the law says and the, the system says you can only lose money right now. And then suddenly somebody comes along with some technology and says, actually, we've got this thing that says, okay, it does kind of lose money, but you're in and out in a second, and then you can take that and and move it to somewhere that does move money. Exactly. So if I could send Agit money in one second, and then as soon as they've sent that money, I can start trading it again, instead of waiting three days that I'm doing now in some cases on international transfers, or you know, a, a third of a day if it's just in the UK, I can be in a couple of seconds. And I also don't need the 20,000 people in the various countries that I that are doing reconciliation and you know claims processing so, and then fa- failures fa- fixing failures for me. Are there any unexpected consequences of increasing velocity by that much? Mm. You know, because because in in some ways like friction to a certain extent like slows things down it like it keeps things, things you know but actually if, if you're talking about microseconds for arguably trillions to to move across the world what does that mean so simon there was a paper by the economists at the bank of england that said that if they had uh, the british pound uh, central bank Digital digital token that would increase the GDP by 3%? Was that the number? That was the estimate, but I think that was a slightly different thing. I think Jason's point is one that says computers being um, slow and having a manual process can was actually something that allowed us to pull the brakes on everything that happened in the financial crisis. But actually, there's, there's two sides to that. So if we have slow processes, we can spot that a car crash is happening midway through the car crash and try and save some of the survivors. Whereas... whereas the idea here is that what we could probably do is see the car crash come right so think about the fact that uh, i'm going to send money to jason jason's going to send it to ajit ajit's going to send it to Lindsay. lindsay's going to send it to Vinny. right now nobody can see all of that picture the bank of england is effectively doing guesswork the fca is essentially doing guesswork now they say in 2008 they had the information, but they couldn't understand the information. So to have all of the, rep- you you say at the end of the day, uh, I think I've got this much. Ajit says I think I've got this much. I say I think. Lindsay says and Vinny says I and, and our numbers don't match. Yeah. And because our numbers don't match, we have this reconciliation. But, but what about right? And I don't know who to trust, so I just panic and sell everything that I can sell, right? And that's how we get into financial crises because I don't know what your the assets are worth. I don't know who owns what. I don't know if who's going to default next, so and I just sell everything. The idea is about having one record of truth, right? Exactly, so that so I don't mean, panic anymore. So you mean the entire problem is solvable with better technology? With transparency, indeed, <laughs> and that's where the blockchain technology is so powerful. So will the, the lawyers have just... failed to deliver in terms of stability, you think the programmers will be able to deliver? Mm. They will definitely play a very important role, but well, they will be assisted by auditors. So I want to frame this in terms of power, right? So if the existing system is unstable because the information is not able to be collated in a way that provides effective governance tools, yeah. it's a system with fractured, fragmented, unstable power. Unreliable information. So we kick out all the wires and we replace them with programmers. Ah. And we get a system with crisp, 
clear, stable, maintainable unitary power, and, which gives government leverage. And if there are un- unintended consequences and failures, then we bring back the lawyers and then they argue the case and try to fix it. I, I think we made them in, right? So you, you, what we're talking about here is a very serious, very conservative organization in, in central banks, uh, very serious, very conservative organizations at some of the major banks that are involved, who are going to do this as slowly as possible and are going to test it through the roof. This is, you know... No, they're they're, they're going to get, they're gonna get still they're going to get a I, I think some the, little country somewhere is going to get right on top of this and do for central banking on blockchains what Estonia did for issuing passports. And right? what the a, Chinese are doing for stem cell research. Absolutely, right? There's a competitive market for governance. The Chinese do stem cells, the Estonians' identity. Some decent country with a central bank that people generally trust. Or a country that doesn't already have legacy right. infrastructure. The besides, so innovate. century Switzerland. Right. Sing- so well, it might be Switzerland that becomes yeah, 21st knows? century Switzerland. But intrinsically, that doesn't make this idea wrong that somebody else might do it first. No, I no, think. it doesn't make it wrong at all. But I think that we are underplaying the actual impact of the idea. Right. Yeah. Oh, so the idea that you know we've got this you know relatively dull you know it's just a little accounting thing it smooths out the reconciliation. No, it allows you to manage the system as a whole because you've got a single unitary source of truth. It allows policymakers to directly implement by doing things like implementing a Tobin tax directly into the single unitary transfer mechanism. It allows you to actually govern the financial system rather than having it be a hundred million foxes hiding in a hundred million holes. Right? <laughs> but, but I guess that's then, the metaphor. That's the metaphor. <laughs> but I guess then that's a lot of information. Suddenly we're into how do you spot Al Qaeda in you know in artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence. Indeed, that's what the bots are for. Yeah, going back to you know, the Bank of England are working on other technology that is not blockchain based. It's data. It's AI. It's analytics. Um, you know, a computer is naturally going to do it better than a human can. So this. So whatever we have is probably going to be better than what we have now. Absolutely, Lindsay. So this is the point that um, so Izzy Kaminska, if she was here from the FT, would say the problem we had isn't that we didn't have the information, it was that we didn't enforce it. I would disagree. I think it's that we didn't understand the information we had in 2008. Mm. In 2008, in the financial crisis, we had the information, we just didn't interpret it. What we need, if we have the information in the same format, in the same place, is then we've got a way to actually interpret what it means and put a big klaxon on the desk of of Mark Carney and say, (laughs) like, problem. Problem. Yeah. <laughs> or Mark Carney is looking. No, let's think about Mark Carney looking at his dashboard on his iPad while you know he's being uh, taken to the bank in a car, and he makes decisions by pressing buttons on the iPad. That's what we're talking about, That's right? And and way back into th- when Lehman Brothers went down, I was awake for three nights in a row, uh, pulling data from various databases and figuring out what our exposure to Lehman was in Japan. Mm-hmm. And you so we did not have the information. And I, and I think there's there's one other bit here that gets missed, right? So let's say. We create this utility settlement coin. What we've effectively done is created a new clearing and settlement infrastructure at the central bank. So they have um, what Crest and what's the T2S for the European, the EBA. Yeah. And so these these are ancient systems now. You know, the, the, they've been around a long time. They've been around, in, in, especially in computing software terms. They're effective. They kind of work, but they they're old. They've been patched all the time. But the Bank of England has talked about doing uh, a a fintech outreach, um, an accelerator They're one of the most progressive central banks I know. And so what if you were going to liberalize access to that real-time gross settlement system? It's been a debate for a long time about you know access to central bank money. So if you know if somebody other than banks could get access to central bank money, or what about smaller banks doing this? Or what about um, payments providers? What about the corporates? What about individuals? What about individuals? If you're going to build a real payment backbone at a national scale, 
you might as well build a real payment backbone and take it right down to the till. Go mm-hmm. cashless. Make it work. We get to discussions of narrow banking and deployment of capital and mm-hmm. whether the central bank is really the right place in order to have that capital to invest mm-hmm. in Which was national infrastructure and you know everything mm-hmm. else. But Which was discussed just... by the Bank of England in their, their yeah, white paper. Yeah. They, they mm-hmm. asked exactly that question, which is effectively, is it worth having a narrow bank central bank that comp- competes with commercial banks based on it will give less returns but has higher stability and is more accessible in times of need? And they actually made the Case that yes, we think over the over the course of uh, a period of time, this would uplift GDP by three yeah. percent, which I think is phenomenal. Now we were involved in the distributed ledger uh, lab set up for the Bank of England, right? And uh, we worked with them on that. One thing we have realized is that uh, the number of uh, central counterparties, whether that's the central bank itself, or exchanges, or clearinghouses, or uh, the number of people that want to maintain and run infrastructure, is actually very small. The number of people who want to have the information and analytics and be able to, you know, uh, govern and regulate and drive the the security and safety of the financial system is actually so they want to be in the business of governing. Do they want to be in the business of managing a large amount of infrastructure? Is is debatable. Yeah, well, so they don't the want to be in the coalface. They definitely want the information. But we're only talking because about then rail. they can govern. We're only talking about rails here, right? Yeah. So, you know. It's a bit weird that we don't have really serious national use of IT infrastructure. You know, electrical rollout was a fundamental thing. Road rollout was a fundamental thing. Uh, uh, post, right? You know, the, the general post office was a fundamental thing. So the idea that we don't have uh, a fundamental national strategy. Digital right? identity, for example. Right, right. right. That, that we don't have a national strategy on ID. Uh, we don't have a national strategy on internet. We don't have universal access as a mandate. The idea that you have houses, you know, every house in the UK will have a toilet is building code, but you can still have houses without internet in them seems crazy. Huh? And yeah. it will seem only increasingly crazy. Well, that might change soon. It will change soon. It will change soon. soon. So the idea that central government would have to become competent in deploying internet technology in the same way it became competent in managing rollout of, say, electricity and grids seems perfectly natural. Once you've got universal service and it's properly established, then you can talk about handing it over to corporates to optimize. But the idea that you're going to see the endless propagation of paper cash indefinitely in a regime where all these buckets of money are hidden in different foxholes rather than central government just you know slapping down a mandate and saying like look we're going to build a single national payment rail it's going to run faster than the wind and there's a trillion dollar in a trillion dollars a day you know sort of threshold yeah it seems obvious that's where they're going to go the question is are they going to go there in five years or 15 years mm-hmm. but not whether they're going to go there or not well so yeah five years or 15 and other interim steps to do it in three that don't require the bank of england to to add its point to or, or even uh, any central bank to be the person that maintains those PCs and computers. Right? Or the RTGS system, for example. So is that their core competency? Is that what they want to be doing? It's not something you can outsource to something which isn't the state actor, right? Because at the end of the day, that it's is... It's critical infrastructure. It's critical infrastructure. It's the absolute crown jewels. If you turn it off, your country ceases to exist. So... But is there an interim step? So if it takes 15 years to get there, is there something you can do between now and then? Well, I mean, what the banks are doing right now is they're basically taking all the steps necessary to persuade the sovereign mm-hmm. that it's time to roll over and get rid of this cash stuff once and for all and go properly cashless. And if you're going to do that, you don't want your cashless society to be, to be operated on your behalf by Visa and Swift. Yeah. Right? You can't outsource your cashless society to Visa at 7% margins. That's not going to work. <laughs> whatever, 2%, whatever it is. Right? So... 
if you take this on as being an, a sovereignty issue, we want to go to a cashless society, we don't want to buy in the service operation which does that, you wind up with the necessity for building the digital equivalent of ordinance serving. Right? The maps are critical to our country's understanding of itself, therefore we run our own mapping service. The currency rail is critical to the operation of our country, therefore we do it ourselves. You know, GCHQ to secure Bank of England domain policy, and you build it as a national priority in the same way that you did grid electrification for the entire country. Yeah. That's the inevitable way forward. The only question is when does everybody else catch on? Interesting. So, Ajit, last question, and then we'll move on to, to our final segment. Um, how should banks be reacting to this? Like, is this something really significant, or is this a is this a kind of a temporary thing? I, I think it's Classic tremendous. I, I think it's absolutely fundamental to the success of distributed ledgers for settlements and clearing, right? And and I, I think the bank more banks need to participate. I think the existing consortia uh, need to take a look at what UBS and Deutsche and others have been able to do and. And, and I think there is a need for uh, to engage the central bank directly and have start those conversations as to what the future looks like. But the banks definitely need to look at it and, and get involved. So you heard it here first, guys. If you work in a bank, get close to this project and, and convince your bosses you need to get, get moving. Absolutely. Alrighty. Um, and bonus segment uh, today is, uh, is because we have our own Vinay Gupta with us. Uh, we, we wanted to ask the question um, because we were pre-recording the podcast and we were having a lot of fun and, and you can't have a conversation with Vinay without it becoming about how the apocalypse will actually happen. So Vinay, what are your top three reasons for how the apocalypse will happen right now? Okay, so let's briefly frame what we mean by the apocalypse, right? Uh, back when I was basically doing consultancy around failed states and large-scale natural disaster planning and all that kind of stuff, uh, I used to define collapse as being when you lived in the same conditions as the people that grow your coffee. Right? Most of the world already exists in conditions that we would consider to be state failure if they happened here. Somehow they muddle along. Mm. So I'm not talking about zombie apocalypse. I'm just talking about a sudden fall from the first world to the third world. Right? And you could argue that that's what happened in Detroit. Right? So the number one cause of this kind of apocalyptic risk is bad governance. Right? Former Soviet Union goes from kind of muddling along to losing 20 years of life expectancy for males over the course of their economic collapse followed by the end of the Soviet Union. That whole process was triggered by bad governance and the result was genuinely kind of apocalyptic. Uh, so that's your first thing. Second thing is climate. Climate is really bad. I mean, much as I'm enjoying this whole, like, London has the climate of Barcelona thing we have right now, <laughs> uh, eventually that's really going to mess up things like food supply. Uh, and then How's it going to mess up food supply? Drought. 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 It's already completely sandbagging uh, the you know, uh, agriculture in California. California has enormous problems with drought. And, you know, you go to India, you go to Africa, all of these people that are, you know, off-grid peasant farmers, subsistence agriculture... Um, if they have drought, they immediately starve because they've got no access to the market, they've got no access to power, rain turns into food, and they are incredibly stable as long as there's still rain. When the rain stops, they all die. Wow. And to stop that happening, you would need to set up a project to give away 50% of the food grown in the world to people that could no longer afford it. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. It's that bad. 
So I think there's um, a, a really interesting question about you know what was your former life and what is it you did to to kind of happen upon an ability to, to think through these sorts of things. Ah, oh, this is very unfortunate. So the the real twist in the tale is that I accidentally invent this refugee shelter called the Hexier in two thousand and two, and after that point, I'm not a humanitarian. I, I'm working on web design for hotels and restaurants because that is the only thing I can find to make a living in the mountains of Colorado where I feel very at home. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm basically, you know, I'm like a ski bum who doesn't ski. Mm -hmm. So I get a job at this energy policy think tank called Rocky Mountain Institute, got really heavily introduced to a whole new way of seeing the world, invent this hexer thing. And the hexer is a little six-sided shed that you make by basically cutting sheets of plywood in half in the diagonal and making them into a triangulated roof, and then you have just whole sheets of plywood for the walls. It's as simple as it gets, and you can make out of this stuff. So after I invent this thing, I start realizing that there are actually problems where you might have to apply it. And it's not that I start out wanting to solve those problems, but I get dragged into it because I now have the capability to do something and now I kind of have to. Uh, so the problem that I get asked to have to think about is how you manage 150 million climate refugees. And that turns into mass deployment for hexiarchs, which turns into critical infrastructure mapping because how do you do 150 million toilets? It's not really hard. The house is easy compared to the toilet, let me tell you. Mm -hmm. um, and then once you build the mental tooling for imagining how to do, you know, sort of brownfield provision for hundreds of millions of people, once you've got that mental tooling, people come and say, well, what about nuclear terrorism or you know, failed states or pandemics or you know, biological warfare? You know, do you have too many opinions of these things? Like, I, I got really sharp phone calls after the Ebola thing kicked off. You know, it was like, um, Vinay, do you have anything on this? And I'd had about 72 hours of warning because I picked up the kind of weak signals fairly early. And in those 72 hours, figured out a potential approach for running uh, sort of quarantined hospitals using Ebola, Ebola survivors who are now immune as the core nursing staff. And, you know, I got to that months before anybody else did. You know, all of those kind of things. You know, once you build the tooling for trying to think in terms of absolute survival for hundreds of millions of people, it turns out that we have quite a lot of places where that tooling is useful. And most of the time, the classified planning in those areas is absolutely terrible. I think on that bombshell, um, we should call this podcast today. But Vinny, thank you as ever. Always very, very interesting. Um, and, and that's it for our guests this week. So thank you, Vinny. Uh, thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Ajit. Thank I really you, appreciate you being with us. Um, and I look forward to uh, seeing you guys again soon. Thank you. Very fun. Lovely. So that's all we have for this week. Thanks again for listening. Well done for making it to the end. I'd like to thank our sponsors as ever. And if you're a conference goer, then I'll remind you that we've got a very special discount on the next Money Conference, which is on the 14th of September. If you go to the website and use the code INSIDER30, you'll get 30% off their ticket price. Just about the best deal you can find. So with that, thanks again. We'll see you next week.